0: chapter 1 verse 6 I'll be reading from the ESV in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise Consider some of the major headlines from the news over the past few weeks. Over 200 girls were abducted in Nigeria by a terrorist organization, Boko Haram, who threatens to enslave them and, and put them into forced marriage. Also consider that 90% of these girls are professed believers. Believers. A few weeks ago, a ferry in South Korea with 250 high school students on it, it who had been about their junior year, it sank. All of them, except for a few, died. A tornado ripped through central Arkansas and killed 17 people. Rob Tittle, who was a member of the Family Life Today program, was a staff member he died in the tornado along with two of his daughters Tori age 20 and Rebecca 14 last night I heard that one of my former students in Seattle she would have graduated this year lost her battle to cancer godly Christian parents How can Christians rejoice in the face of such tragedy? That is what 1 Peter, the passage I read, is talking about. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory in the midst, in the context of great tragedy. And this question applies not only to those who are going through suffering, but even us who are simply aware of it. How do we make sense of joy in the midst of suffering? how do we, how do we grieve and how do we suffer and how do we rejoice? And the simple answer is that when we go through trials, we grieve. we grieve but we also rejoice because of what those trials reveal to be true. And notice I didn't say that we rejoice in the trials. We grieve the trials. Because that's what trials do. They, they grieve us. What we rejoice in is what the trials reveal. Trials reveal the genuineness of a Christian's faith. You've heard of the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. It means that you have to try out food. You can't simply look at it just based on appearance and say, yes, that must taste good. What Peter is saying in this passage is the truth is in the trials. The point is the same. The quality of something is revealed not simply by its appearance, what it looks like on the outside, but through its testing. See, our culture runs with this assumption. It was a slogan for a famous popular camera. Image is everything. That's what we prioritize. We tend to value appearance even over quality. You can see this in the American automobile industry. Things are built with a short shelf life. It's true that we don't make things the way we used to. If we did, the companies. Would make significantly less money. Things are built to have a temporary shelf life because it's in the buying a new one that companies make money. It's the first impression that matters in relationships often, even in jobs. People hire people based upon a piece of paper, a resume. Even schools accept students based upon a piece of paper. It's the appearance that our culture tends to value more than genuine quality. But the Bible assesses things differently. It's the genuineness of faith that matters. And it's all that matters. It's the decisive reason for joy in the believer's life. And it's also the decisive reason why believers can rejoice... In the midst of horrific trials. It's because trials prove the genuineness of faith. And so this passage is not about how to rejoice in trials. That's not the point. It's about why a genuine believer can rejoice in trials. It's giving the reason for it. And this is seen in the context of their joy. Verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, it points back to what Tim spoke on last week, their hope of future salvation. And this is what we will finally experience when we regain our resurrected bodies. What we just, we just sung about in that last praise song. And it was beautiful to sing it as a congregation to think, yes, as a church, this is where our hope is found. And when he calls our name, all of our joy, all of our hope will be realized. Peter says they're rejoicing, the Asian Christians, because all their hopes will be realized at that point. And yet, despite that future hope that they all have, he's very explicit though now you grieve. In this you rejoice, though now you're grieving. You have been grieved. So the context of their joy, their present context, is grief. The word means to be sorrowful or distressed. I like the old English word, worried, which means to be shaken, like a dog worries a stray cat. Be distressed. See, Peter's aware of the fact that these Christians are grieving. This is an important point to make because many people believe that when a Christian goes through trials, that they shouldn't grieve, or at least not long. That they should put on a happy face or maybe just keep a stiff upper lip, just grin and bear it. This notion was humorously mocked in Monty Python's movie, The Life of Brian. And in the final scene of that movie, you have the main character who's getting crucified along with other Christians. And as they're hanging on the cross, they mirthfully sing, always look on the bright side of life. As the main character looks on dumbfounded. And it makes me assume that the creators of the scene had probably been confronted with some sort of ridiculousness in their own lives. That's how they saw Christians responding to trials is look on the bright side of it. And maybe it's because they had a Christian come up to them and offer some sort of platitude in the midst of their suffering. Something like, well, God works everything out for good, which is true, but not helpful to a person in the midst of suffering or maybe they just said god is aware of your grief see such a response is really a mockery to a person who's suffering because it's 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 like that when we offer a platitude like that it's it's like we're trying to suggest that what they're really going through what they're really feeling isn't what's real it's like we're we're trying to get them to pretend that they don't really feel or they shouldn't feel the way they do about their situation. But when we make real suffering appeal unreal, what we're really doing is proving the blaring fault in our own faith. See, if that's what we're trying to move people in their suffering, it's showing that what we we believe is that our hope is in some fanciful, bright side of life that's coming. Yeah, okay, you can suffer for a little while, but we should, always should be cheerful. There's something, there's something better on the other side. And if that's what we're hoping for, we have no hope to offer somebody in suffering. A mature person recognizes, and this is for believers and unbelievers, I think. A mature person recognizes there really is no bright side to life because of sin. And so the suffering Christian does not rejoice because there's some silver lining in every dark cloud. They rejoice because of where their faith is. That one day, they will get their resurrected body. And God will be vindicated. So the bottom line is, Christian, when you are grieved by various trials, feel free to grieve. Feel free to grieve. You should grieve. If we don't grieve as Christians, something's wrong. That's the result of sin. And sin is. It could be the result of somebody's sinful decision. It could be natural disasters. It could be death. We should grieve. If we don't grieve, there's something wrong with us. We need to grieve. We should grieve. Genuine faith is not afraid to grieve. Grieve bitterly. But we should not grieve as those who have no hope. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6... Christians are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Somebody might ask, well, what about the apostles when they were put in jail and they were singing? Right. Isn't that the example for believers? This is coming comes from the book of Acts. It says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing in the trial because they were specifically being tried for their faith. Their faith was so evident, the choices they make were because of their faith. And because it was evident, that's why they were being tried. That's why they're rejoicing. Their faith was so obvious To believers and unbelievers, they were getting persecuted for it. They were rejoicing because they had faith. And they would be honored for it. It was almost a double honor. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven Or so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you notice this doesn't mean that they were happy and delighted that they were experiencing fear and experiencing humiliation. But they were happy because of the reason for the treatment. That they had been changed. That they counted their love of their Savior more than their love of their own lives. So Peter encourages the believers in Asia. He says, if now, if necessary, you've, you've been grieved by various trials, you still rejoice. The ver- word various trials is insightful. It's the word testing. It means to try and learn the nature or character of something or someone by submitting such to a thorough and ex- extensive Testing. It's interesting, the word is used in various places. This is 2 Corinthians 13.5. It says, put yourselves to the test to see whether you're in the faith or not. In Matthew 16.1, it says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. Speaking of Christ. And asked him if he would show a sign from heaven. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. An expert in the law stood up to test him. Same word. It's to to test a person, to see the the nature of of what they're saying. Is it true? The point is, trials test the genuineness of a person's faith. But it also says that these trials, these tests are various. In other words, they're not just limited to persecution. These tests come in different forms. A Christian can be tried by their health or their family their neighbors, their job, the weather, traffic, crime. It's okay to say that you're being tried by traffic. It may not be particularly grievous compared to like the death of someone. But it is a trial that tests where your hope is really found. If your joy is robbed because of traffic, it's telling you something. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. That's the point. And as I mentioned earlier, as a culture, we tend to assess things based upon appearance. What they, the quality of something based upon what we see initially. And I think as a church, we can do this as well. We meet somebody based upon how they're dressed or how they speak, how they carry themselves. We think, okay, so-and-so, they must be a, a strong believer. And then a trial comes into their life and they walk away from the Lord. And we're shocked. But remember what Jesus said in the parable of the sowers. As he explains this parable, he tells this to the disciples. Explaining the seed sown, not all the seed sown is going to last. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word And it proves unfruitful. So the amount of service a person does or the volume of their voice while they're singing a praise song, how much they give to the church, none of that is proof of the reality of a person's faith. A person's faith is proven by how they respond to trials. The real evidence of Genuine faith is seen when what we love is taken away from us. When we're tried. A trial is simply a dashed desire. We have something, we want something, and we're prevented from getting it. Or there's something we love that's taken away from us. And we're grieved. And the trial at this point is, how do you respond when such a thing happens? Do you Follow the advice of Job's wife and curse God and die? Or do you respond like Job and say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When one can grieve over the loss and yet rejoice, it shows that their joy, their ultimate joy, is not in having something. The source of their joy is secure because it's in Christ. That's what Peter says in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the first words there in verse 7. So that... This tells us the reason for their grief. It also tells us the reason for their joy. They have been grieved so that they can be assured that their faith is real. Apparently, it's necessary, according to verse 6, it's necessary that you be tried so that you can be assured your faith is real. But notice it's not just to assure themselves, although I think that's primary. It also shows anybody that's watching, the unbelieving world in particular, that that person's faith is real. It's not just some imagination. It's not just some fanciful thinking of some bright side. It's real. It's substantial. Because as believers are tried and people see that they rejoice despite the losses... They recognize that their hope is not in what was once lost. And as those unbelievers see that, they're going to be compelled to ask a reason for the hope that is in the Christian. And that's what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15. They'll ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this is because the trials test the genuineness of a person's faith. See, nothing else can prove a person's faith like a trial. Paul likens the nature of testing to gold that gets refined by a fire. As gold is refined, the fire, the heat, separates the impurities from the pure element so that pure gold results. The fire refines, but it also proves if the gold is real or not. If the gold, if the gold was fake, it was plastic painted with spray paint or something, all that goes into the impurities. And it's seen to be fake. Fake. The fire proves the true nature of something. And the fire of trials prove the supernatural nature of faith. that's That's what's different about a Christian's faith as opposed to all the other faiths in the world. Right? We like to speak of faith. Right? The Muslim has faith. The Hindu has faith. The Buddhist has faith, and yeah, they have faith, but there's a difference between that sort of faith and this sort of faith, because one is maybe a a wish, a longing, it could be a commitment even, but a Christian's faith is something that is God wrought, it's created by God, and it's proven to be true in the midst of a trial, it's proven that it's done by God by the trial, that's Peter's point. Real faith is not destroyed through a trial. It's like the Ring of Doom in the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf found out it was the Ring of Doom by throwing it into a fire. And the fire showed the real nature of the ring. The supernatural origin of it. And because these Christians' proven faith is shown to be of supernatural origin, it also shows how precious it is. I love what he says next. It is more precious than gold that perishes. It's hard to imagine, especially in this context, of something more precious than gold. And it says that the Christian's faith is far more precious. The word describes something being of great value or worth. Notice how it's used in, in in the rest of Scripture. Matthew twenty six seven. It's used to describe the perfume in that alabaster jar that was broken, so that Jesus could be anointed, and and, and the disciples freaked out that this, you know, year's worth of years it was like a whole year's salary worth of perfume was wasted on Jesus. It was so precious, but this woman's faith and love for her Lord was. It was worth that. It's also used to describe the pearl of great price in Jesus' parable where the man goes out and, p- and sells everything he has that he might have that pearl. It's so precious. It's worth giving up everything. It's also used here in First Peter in chapter 3 where it describes in verse 4 the hidden person of the heart The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's precious because that sort of heart can only be brought by God. Likewise, genuine faith is a work. It's a supernatural work of God. And so when a person's tried and it shows that that person's faith is real, they can rejoice. Their faith is of a different origin. It's not earthly. It's not just some whimsical hope. It's real. And the point is that genuine faith is far more precious than gold because gold perishes. It maintains value just in this life. It may maintain its value over a few generations, but only for this life. And when a person's dead, The value of that gold is no longer of any value to them. But genuine faith cannot be destroyed. It can be tested, but if it's real, it'll be proven to be so through the testing. And the person who has genuine faith can rejoice because they have something that can never be taken away from them. That's why they rejoice in the midst of a trial. They're being tried, and they endure, and they still love Jesus more than anything and it proves that their faith is real. They're truly saved. And this is why the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 make sense. When Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, blessed, blessed are the are the beat up in life is the idea. Because... Those who are so treated and choose to honor God, instead of seeking their own self-interest, prove that they no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Even if it means pain and suffering to do so. And they have every reason to rejoice. Not because it, all of a sudden life is fun now that they're a Christian, or that it has some sort of bright side. They rejoice because the suffering proves that they really do have eternal life. Their suffering proves that everything the Bible says is true. They're real. It's the evidence that a work has been done that's beyond any human explanation. Because if they wouldn't be able to endure it, then their faith was fake. But they do. And notice what Peter says next. It will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ genuine faith proven faith will result in your your praise your glory and honor when Christ returns and you receive your glorified bodies you might be thinking no 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 all praise all glory all honor belongs to God and that is true but but don't be so eager to be pious that, that you prevent God from doing what He wants to do. That's not piety, that's pride. And that's what this text is saying. You will be gloried, glorified. You will be honored. You will be praised. Because when Christ comes and you receive your resurrected body, you will also receive a crown of glory. Notice 1 Peter five four. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You will receive it. God's giving you an unfading crown of glory because he wants you to be glorified. He wants you to be glorified. He wants you to enjoy the glory that he had from eternity past as a trinity, as the trinity. He wants us to share in it. To reject it is it's to reject God the point is, you will be honored for your service and sacrifice to the Lord. When you receive your glorified body, that's when you will hear, if you have been faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. You will be praised by your Lord. And of course, we recognize that any sort of honor that God gives us, it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of His working through us. But God does want to honor us. He will honor us and reward us for what we have had to endure in this life. That's the point of what Peter is saying. Well, how does one know if they have genuine faith? What does joy in the midst of suffering actually look like? Well, Peter tells us in the next verse, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, the evidence of genuine joy is seen that no matter what you lose, you never lose your joy. You still love Jesus. Because you could lose everything. And he remains your treasure. You love Jesus more than anything else in this life. Despite never ever having seen him. Think about that. None of us have seen Christ. Peter and the apostles had. They saw him in his life. They saw him after, in his death. After he got his resurrected body. They saw him. And Peter stands astonished, even as he proclaims this to the the recipients of this letter. You haven't seen him. We've seen him. We know him. But you haven't seen him. And yet you love him. You love him despite everything that's been going on. All these various trials that grieve you. And you love him. That's evidence of something. Remember what Jesus told Thomas after Thomas was, was hesitant to believe That what he saw was truly Christ. And he touched Jesus. And Jesus said to him. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen. And yet have believed. Why are they blessed? Because it proves. A supernatural work of God has happened in their heart. That you would love Christ more than anything else in this world. Is evidence that you are real. Your faith is real. We are blessed in not having seen. We still believe, even though tried and tested. We still believe because we've been born of the Spirit. And this transformation that's taken place has nothing to do with sensory data, information that's been given to us, and we just intellectually embrace it. It's evidence that a supernatural work has been done in our heart. This is what Peter describes as... The joy of believers being inexpressible and a glorified joy. It's inexpressible. That is, it's very, very real and yet it's hard to put into words. It's hard to articulate the joy that we have. It's like a mother who's trying to describe the deep affection, the deep love she has for her child. It's real and yet that doesn't mean it's easy to articulate or you can even give reasons. But it's very real. It's also described as being full of glory. Literally the text says, joy is, that is glorified. That is, it's a result of the work of God in a person's heart. The joy that they have is a glorified joy because God has wrought it. It's God infused joy. God-infused glory. See, glory is a great word. Glory is its the radiance of the nature of God. When we speak of something as glorious, it, the words used to describe God or His nature or His works, it's an adjective that describes God-likeness. And we often tend to think of glory in reference to trivial things right the glory of breaking a record winning a championship being crowned a king but this isn't this isn't real glory this is vain glory it's it's like the twisted wicked stepbrother of true glory vain glory is just a shadow it's just a taste of true glory there's a, there's a there's a similarity but it's fleeting, right? We know this. Glory is kind of like love. I think maybe this might draw it out a little bit. See, both originate from God. Both can be experienced superficially in a fleeting manner as well. See, the glory of a broken record only lasts as long as the record. It's no longer glorious after somebody breaks it. The love of a smitten high school student can last just about as long. Both are real. They really, there's, something, there's something glorious, or something love-likeness there. But it only lasts until something or someone better comes along. It's fleeting. But true love is like the love of a godly mother towards her children. It's very real. It's unbreaking, and there's no, there's no natural explanation for its strength. It doesn't give up just because the kids are being difficult, or even if the kid is cruel. There's no natural explanation for that. It's the nature of true love, and such is true glory. It's very real, it's unfading, and there's no natural explanation. It's a glory that is awesome and it's admirable. It's the glory that is seen when one is willing to suffer because of their faith. Because true glory is the result of God's transforming power in the heart of somebody. It's like God leaves his mark on them. He He infuses them with glory and he gives them a glorified joy. And they rejoice because of it. So God's mark on their life, their faith, is more precious to them than all that the world could offer. Because it's given them all that they could ever want. And so they rejoice, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This word obtaining means to cause someone to experience something on the basis of... Of what that person has already done. It it refers to experiencing the results of something that you already did. Like consequences. Something's already been done, but you're feeling the effects of it now. Listen carefully to how this word is used in other verses. Colossians 3.25 For the one who has done wrong will be caused to suffer for what he has done. For the one who has done wrong will be be caused to suffer for what he has done. Notice how it's used in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In order that each one may be repaid in proportion to those things which he has done in his bodily life. Each one may be repaid in proportion to those things that have been done in this bodily life. So it's this idea that something's been done and now the, the, the effects of or the consequences of that thing that's been done, that person is experiencing. So the idea being communicated with this word obtaining is that believers rejoice because they realize that they're currently experiencing the results of already having been saved. They've been saved and they're now experiencing the results of that. And they know they're experiencing the results of genuine salvation because even though they're being tried, they still love Jesus more than anything. And they rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. They rejoice because they realize they're saved. They're really saved. They really have eternal life. Their faith is real. It's real. And they know it because of these trials. They understand the weight of Jesus' words in Matthew 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? They look at that and they say, it's worth it. So worth it. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. They love. Because there's, no there's no more precious thing that can be said. Jesus Christ is worth all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss that could be inflicted. And a true believer knows that. And when they're suffered and they don't let go, they still love Jesus, they can have confidence it's real. It's real faith. It's not their parents' faith. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky idea. It's real. And they resonate with Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr whose credo was, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And since it's Mother's Day, I wanted to share this letter that Elliot wrote to his parents after committing to the mission field. At age 22, Jim Elliott had a very promising uh, ministry in front of him in the United States. He could have been a successful pastor. He could have gone probably anywhere he wanted. And when he wrote his parents to tell them about his call to go to the Kichuas in South America, they weren't very pleased. And they wrote him to tell him that they didn't think what he was doing was good. And he answered bluntly. So what he said... I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom in following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold His cause. Grieve not, then, if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. You've also heard of Richard Vernbrand, the Romanian pastor who was imprisoned and then tortured for Christ under that country's communist regime. In 1950, his wife, Sabina was also imprisoned for her missionary efforts, and she was forced to serve as a laborer on the Danube Canal project. They had a nine year old son, Mihail. Richard was in prison, Sabina was in prison, and that left Mihail homeless and alone. And this anecdote was taken from Wurmbrand's book, Tortured for Christ. By the age of 11, suffering had produced a wavering in Sabina's son, Mihai's faith. But after two years of Sabina's imprisonment, he was finally allowed to see her. The visit was 15 minutes, standing in the same room with guards listening to every word. Sabina was dirty, thin, with calloused hands, wearing the shabby uniform of a prisoner. Mihai barely recognized her. Sabina called across the space that separated them. Mihai, believe in Jesus with all your heart. Later she said, I gave him the best counsel I could, knowing from my experience in prison among so many people, old and young, that only Christ can give the hope that lights the darkest place. When she said this, the guards in a savage rage pulled her away from Mihai and took her out. And Mihai wept at seeing his mother dragged away. This was the minute of his conversion. He knew that if Christ can be loved under such circumstances, he surely is the true Savior. He said afterwards, if Christianity had no other arguments in its favor than the fact that my mother believes in it, This is enough for me. And that was the day he accepted Christ. Being a Christian and being a Christian mother is a call to suffer. Because as Christians we are called to follow the example of our Lord who gave himself up for us. In the book of Romans it says... God shows his own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, our Lord, died for us. And this is what we commemorate with the Lord's Supper, with communion. That though we were yet sinners, the Creator of heaven and earth died for us. And therefore, it's something we rejoice in, but it's something we also take very seriously. It's for true believers only. Those as we've talked about, those who love Jesus more than anything. And so to eat of the Lord's Supper, one has to commit to following Christ. And if a person hasn't committed to following Christ and they take of this, it's, it's like they're mocking him. And so we would encourage, if you have not committed your life to Christ, just refrain from this. We are delighted that you're a part of the service. We want you to hear more. We want to share more about why we love Christ. But please refrain. But if you are a follower of Christ, even if you don't worship with us regularly, we would encourage you to join with us because you're a part of the same body that we're a part of. And we would encourage you to partake as... We take communion as a body. And as we did last month, what we're going to do today is we're going to partake of the elements together. So in a minute, the worship team is going to come up and they're going to play a worship song. And we'll have uh, a couple people up here passing out the elements. Once the worship team starts, we can form two lines. Come and take each of the elements and then go back to your seat. And then after the song is over, I will lead us in taking the elements together as a church. And uh, we will celebrate our Lord together as a body. And so, worship team, we invite you to come up.